It's Tuesday on Daily Delivery. Michael Rand here. Glad to be back for another day. Uh, good show coming up. John Marthaler will be with me in just a little while here. Previewing the Women's World Cup gets underway Thursday. Team USA first match on Friday. Excellent stuff from John. Um, watch for some of his writing later this week, too, in the Star Tribune, startribune.com, setting up um, setting up the World Cup with words, and in words here, too, but uh, a, a spoken word and not a written word. So he'll be with me here in just a few minutes here. Got some uh, some listener questions to get to at the end of the show. Um, first, though, what did I miss? You know, let's go deep on... Byron Buxton today and what in the world is wrong with Byron Buxton because you know watch some of Monday's Twins game they lose 7-6 to Seattle kind of an odd game maybe a misleading final score Max Kepler hit a three-run two-out ninth inning home run to cut it from 7-3 to 7-6 but Ryan Jeffers I think struck out after that game over Byron Buxton in that inning, I believe, struck out. Byron Buxton, 0 for 5 in this game against Seattle. Still DHing, still batting third. 0 for 17 with 10 strikeouts since the All Star break. Now batting 196. OPS now below 700. And. Royce and I got into this a little bit on Monday, but it, this warrants some further kind of evaluation, um, a little bit more investigation because this this is not working. Uh, whatever the plan was for Byron Bucks in this season to keep him healthy, to keep him on the field, has generally worked, but at at what cost? At at what? kind of point are they trying to make now to keep him in the lineup if if that's possible because he's not a good hitter right now he is dragging down a lineup that cannot afford any drag on it I know they've been better offensively since the break yes they swept Oakland by the way uh, Oakland is awful they played a good team Seattle they lost to Seattle Cleveland got a win on Monday so um, some of the good feelings from the weekend quickly erased in that fashion. But the Byron Buxton situation, let's go back to, I was reading back to February, uh, spring training, very early spring training, a Jim Suhan column, kind of gets to the heart of the two things that might be going on here right now. Um, number one, um, is Buxton even healthy enough to be on the field period i think there was some reporting in june that he's not ready to, to play center field yet which is fine um but you know back in back in february rocco baldelli talking about the twins and what their plan was going to be at dh this season he said you could probably name just about every guy out there in the regular lineup that's going to have some time at dh i could waste everyone's energy and start listing all of them there's a lot of them so we're going to have some options he went on to list a bunch of guys. He said it's a good way to use the DH slot, to use a bunch of different guys. There's been guys in the game like Nelson Cruz, David Ortiz, who really fit that spot. If you have guys like that, you're going to go with guys like that. But I think for most clubs, the best way to do it is to rotate that thing around. Now, was that really the plan at the start of the year? Because Byron Buxton has more or less been the DH for the entirety of this season. He's not played the field at all, and when he has been there, he has been the DH. 
The Twins have played 95 games now this season. Byron Buxton's been the DH in 73 of those games. Nobody nobody else has been the DH in more than five, and he has been the DH in every game since June 27th to, uh, to the detriment of this team. So if the plan was that they were going to sprinkle this around and that Buxton was eventually going to play center field, that went by the wayside at some point. Was it really the plan to sprinkle it around, or were they determined to have Buxton be the DH for most or all of this season, or did this evolve because Byron Buxton is not healthy enough and his you know his condition didn't improve enough to allow him to be on the outfield? Probably a little bit of both, maybe some of the plan, some of that, but that the, the problem there is that if he's not healthy enough to play in the field, is he really healthy enough to be pulling down your lineup as the number three hitter as the DH every night when he's hitting below 200. Still, like I said, below 200. Um, OPS now below 700. You know, it's 0 for 17 with 10 strikeouts. I've mentioned all these things already. Just mind-boggling um, since the All-Star break, getting even worse. So if he's not healthy enough to play the field, is he healthy enough really to be in the lineup almost every day? Or should, like Rocco said in February, rotate that thing around. Shouldn't they get him out of the lineup? Try somebody else. Bench Byron Buxton right now because this is not working. Or is this a case of Byron Buxton is healthy enough to at least hit, but he hates being the DH? And that's part of, you know, this has been part of the story at various points, but this is still in the Suhan column uh, down in spring training, early spring training um, in February. Uh, Buxton asked about... uh, being the DH, said it is what it is. I'm a center fielder, so anything that has to do with me getting somebody else out, I'm all in. It's different for me. I did a little bit of it last year, so I got the mindset, got more reps with it. I'm a little more prepared this year. Um, He got asked, is it like having a day off? No, no. If it were a day off, I wouldn't be swinging in between at-bats. That's more than you do on a day off. That's more than you swing when you're in the game. People don't realize that at DH, you have to stay loose. You don't just watch the game in the dugout or on TV. We literally hit more balls in the cage than we do when we're playing. Last year when I was getting a little bit limited, so I knew I had to DH just to make sure my body was right. So he's not really getting any additional rest. Maybe it's some wear and tear on not having to chase fly balls in the outfield, keeping that knee fresh, but he's still grinding in the cage. He's still wearing down, and he hates it. I don't think he, maybe hates a strong word. He would so much rather, and I think most people who um, are gold glove caliber center fielders would so much rather be in the outfield than playing DH. I think he doesn't like it. I think it's affecting him to a degree mentally. I think the Twins have done him no favors, even if the plan makes a certain amount of sense to keep him healthy, that this, to, to keep him under wraps, to make him DH fully the whole season um it just doesn't make sense if he's not healthy enough to play the field he's probably not healthy enough to dh and if he is healthy enough to play in the field but you're still making him dh and you're making him miserable are you not messing him up are you not taking away something from one of the games you know most exciting potential players and i know i get it what we complained about for years was keep byron buxton healthy they're trying to do that i get it but at what expense what is what is going on here? Are they either making him miserable or is he not healthy enough to play and they should be playing somebody else? One of those two things, going back to February, which they talked about, which he talked about, has to be true right now. And they have to change this right now. They've got to get out of this mindset of Byron Buxton is the three-hitter, the DH, every single game. Because right now, 
It is not working. Spread it around. Try something else. Put him on the injured list if he needs to go on the injured list. Try something else. Bring him back when he's healthy enough to play center field. Whatever it is, stop with this charade. Stop with Byron Buxton as the everyday DH. He is not getting it done right now. MGM Wine and Spirits is the choice for savings, service, and a great selection of spirits, premixed cocktails, wines, and of course, ice-cold beers and hard seltzers. With over 30 locations throughout the Twin Cities and beyond, there's an MGM near you. Head to MGMWineAndSpirits.com to find a convenient location in your area. Get social. Follow MGM on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news and trends. Make great moments with MGM Wine and Spirits, your locally owned and operated choice for over 50 years. Save time, save money. Shop MGM. Let's talk Women's World Cup soccer today on Daily Delivery. It starts on Thursday, Team USA's first match on Friday um, over in Australia. So some different 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 viewing times. Um, I think the first two USA matches are relatively uh, friendly for viewers. But I think the third one, John Martholler, is at like two in the morning our time. So good luck if yep. you really want to watch that. But John's going to help us get ready for this. He's writing a couple things this week for the Star Tribune, kind of helping us preview the tournament. Um, John, first, how you doing? Not too bad. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm 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 interested in this tournament, uh, especially after reading what you wrote in advance. It's not quite on the website yet, but it will be soon. Um, you know, just more uh, kind of an overview first of the field at large. And, you know, the first thing I guess is, you know, these things that go in four year cycles, like the World Cup, you kind of tend to forget some of the the stories and the lead up to it but there was an awful lot of drama in women's mm-hmm. soccer in the past few years whether it was you know c- players not liking their coach and trying to get their coach ousted and either succeeding or failing and some of these teams are, are are quite good and there's still pay equity issues and there's there's a lot of things that happen in this cycle that have influenced who you know who might be the favorites in this year's in this year's women's world cup yeah that if you if you look at a sort of an overarching narrative in women's soccer generally it's been sort of a reckoning over the last five even ten years of players finally having sort of a platform to not put up with some of the not only the inequalities in the game but just pure terrible treatment the nwsl has gone through gone through this with three or four different coaches that have sort of been disgraced and in various different ways but it's all been sort of part and parcel of the same thing and now there's national teams that are going through the same thing france france had the same coach for six seven years she just resigned they've they've replaced her coming into this tournament because of the same reason she's been treating people poorly spain might be the best team in the world except that 15 players last year said listen our seems coach like a lot. is seems like a lot our, yeah 15 players on the team Almost, i lot. think most of them were from barcelona which is the best club team in europe yeah 15 of those players said, listen, our coach, number one, doesn't know how to coach. And number two, treats us like kindergartners. Like they, they, it was reported that he was doing stuff like the players couldn't lock their hotel room doors until he came and checked on everybody before bedtime. Just like, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous yeah. behavior. Unbelievably, Spain decided to stick with it. They've got that coach going into this tournament. 12 of those 15 players, including some of their best players, not at the tournament. I think Spain might be the favorite, except they're going through that federation battle. Canada is, uh, with all these stories, the one I can hardly believe is Canada because Canada's Soccer Federation ran out of money. They weren't paying the women's national team players. 
So yeah. the Canada players said, all right, we're going to go on strike. They were, they were due to play in this tournament last fall against the United States. And they said, we're not going to play unless, play unless you pay us. And so then Canada's Soccer Federation threatened to sue their own players for not playing if they didn't play, even though they hadn't been paid. I don't – eventually they just played to so they wouldn't get sued because they didn't have the ability to go through that lawsuit. But I don't know how they would have paid the lawyers. Anyway, it's Did just, they get paid? Did they ever like get that. paid? Did they ever get paid? I, I think they did eventually. I hope so. Get, Jeez. Okay. But Canada soccer, Canada soccer is apparently on the verge of declaring bankruptcy too. Hmm. So, you know, it 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 does it does it gets old after a while. It gets sure. old reading these things. But I and I, I noted this in the thing that I wrote. It it is worth remembering that the United States won the World Cup last time around as they were just sort of getting into their battle with the Federation. So yes. it it's not necessarily maybe not in Spain's case, if twelve of the US players hadn't come to the World Cup last time, they probably wouldn't have won right. it. But for it just because you're in a battle with the Federation doesn't necessarily mean that they they, they can't still win. But it it's a common theme. It's a, been a common theme across women's women's soccer, and I think it will continue to be. We make a lot of distractions, us in the media, and sometimes it sometimes it's probably true, and sometimes it's probably just narratives that we retrofit to uh, to to wins and losses, things like that. So I, I get what you're saying there. I, I do think though that some of these things, whether you know strictly some of the teams you're talking about or some others that are on the rise, I think the, they all kind of coalesce to make this a pretty interesting and maybe more so than in past years, wide open uh, Women's World Cup. It feels like a lot of teams have a chance to be competitive, and if you're competitive, to to win a World Cup, whereas in past seasons, I don't think you would have found the same number of teams or maybe the same uh, the same teams in general that, that had a chance to win this, this to, to win the whole tournament. Yep, I mean, it, it's wide open in the sense that it's a 32-team World Cup again, which it, it wasn't too long ago that it was 24 or even 16 teams the on the women's side um so there there's more more countries or more places are at the world cup but at the same time there i think there are more genuine challengers i think i, I think that's absolutely right in, in the past it was a little bit like all right the united states is good china or japan might be good some of the scan the scandinavian nations norway and sweden they're pretty good germany and then it gets a little dicey. France is France. You never quite know what you're going to get with France. This year, England has finally broken through and won a tournament. If you ask anybody from England, they should be the favorites by far because now that they finally won something, it's like, well, finally England is here. England has invented women's soccer in 2022 at the United <laughs> at, at the United States at the European Championships. So now that they've invented women's soccer, now it's time for them to dominate the world. But they are they've had some injuries. The United States has had some injuries, but they're they're good enough to win it. And even going down to I, I think the dark horse of the tournament is Australia, partially because they're playing yeah. at home, but partially because they're good. And yeah. Australia has a history of being good when they're playing at home in across the sporting world. So it's I, I think they're the I, I think they're the possibility. And I think having Australia behind them in a having the country behind them in a way that maybe is not true when they're not at home is going to help them a lot. Is this like a shout out to your obscure minor sports knowledge, like rugby and things like that? Oh, is that is this... I assume that we're going to go on to talk about rugby league and then we'll talk about the, the ashes that are going on right now. Test cricket. I that's next on the agenda, right? It's not, but I was wondering if those those Australian successes that you were referring to were <laughs> were uh, were in some other sports that I wasn't aware of. 
Honestly, I was mostly thinking about the the Sydney Olympics when they okay, won okay. six thousand gold medals okay. when it was down under. So fair enough. It had more to do with Ian Thorpe than it had to do with <laughs> Australian cricket. But if you'd like my thoughts, I'm more than happy to provide them. Shane Heal would like to have a word with you, Shane. sir. Um, well, I, I I think that I think that does make it interesting. I think that does make it wide open um, for for a lot of competitors. That said. Team USA is is intriguing. I mean, you look at a team that is the defending champion, but, you know, has undergone a, a pretty dramatic remaking. We, I think we, uh, the the team, you know, the team a few years back was kind of billed as it was kind of like the last the last hurrah to a certain degree for some of those really excellent national team players that had been there for a while. And they, they were able to go out and, and win it again. But now you're talking about a new squad with a lot of new faces. And on top of that, um, quite a few key injuries stacking up, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I think the biggest injury that they're dealing with is Becky Sauerbrunn, who is the, the team captain in a lot of ways, sort of the, the heart of the team, the spiritual leader of the team. She's out of the tournament and playing center back for the United States is never any picnic because in general, it's sort of a all engines go everybody forward kind of thing. Like yeah. their left back is Crystal Dunn, who's an attacking midfielder. Their right back, Sofia Huerta, who used to be an attacking midfielder. These are not, there's not going to be a lot of, all right, we're going to drop a bank of four real deep in the penalty area and we're just going right. to defend solidly. It's a lot of, you're out on an island when you're a center back. They also, you sort of talk about the uh, a change between the eras. The the two players I think that they would have most depended on to say, all right, these two are going to take us forward into the new era were Katarina Macario, who just got she was she grew up in Brazil. She was natural. She moved to the United States when she was, I think, 12 and was naturalized and was sort of the new exciting player, the new big thing in U.S. soccer. She's her. Yeah. OK, uh, Mallory Swanson was she was she was already a well-known player, but she was the breakout star of 2022 and 2023. Of uh, She scored all the goals. She's the the new brightest hope to score the goals at the world cup. She's out. She was hurt in April, I think. So in a sense, not only have they moved on from the last era a little bit, I think there were 14, the uh, the 14 players that played in the world cup final in 2019, I think maybe five were going to be in the starting lineup this time around because of the injuries also because of things moving on. But then with Swanson and Macario going out, it's like, all right, the we're onto the next new generation. Yeah. Do they have enough depth then to still, I mean, they, it sounds like they're yeah. still competitive at least, but I mean, what is it given, given all of those factors? Like where do you, where do you even place them in terms of, you know, the favorites and just kind of their overall chances going into this thing? Well, that's the thing about, that's the thing about the U S women's national team. I, you, you do look down the roster and they, they're missing key players from injuries, but you also look at the people that they are bringing to the world cup and it's like, well, they might be fine. And when you're the United States, the expectation is trophy or bust. There's, there's, there's really no expect. There's no other expectation, no matter who is hurt or who gets hurt or whether they're moving on from another generation or not. If they don't win the trophy, it's going to be a disappointment. And not only for fans or not only as a media narrative for the players themselves, when you're, when you're on the U S women's national team, you expect to win. Yeah, no, that that's true. And that, that creates a certain amount of, pressure a certain amount of expectation a certain amount of uh you know certain amount of drama i suppose but it 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 is interesting so where do you i mean do you do we have a defined favorite in this tournament there or do we just have a a whole bunch of teams who could win it well i i mean i don't i I don't know what the betting odds are but i'm guessing the united states is still the favorite not only stateside but elsewhere as well just because 
of where they've been at in the past. Not with nothing to do with their current roster, with their current injury situation, with whatever. I think they're probably still a favorite. But the other favorites, like I said, Spain is I, I think Spain is up there without even without those players. They've got so many good players on that team. And I, I think the other two to watch are probably Germany and England, if you're looking at teams from Europe, just because Germany Germany's a little like the United States, both on the men's and the women's side. It doesn't really matter what the team is like, who's on the team. They have a, they have a lot of great players too. But no matter who's on the team or how they're playing or how they're looking, they expect to win. They're all all Germany does is win the soccer. And the women are no different. Uh beyond those, I think Sweden has been they're they're one of the highest ranked teams coming into the tournament, but they've been kind of awful lately. In the European Championships last year, they got destroyed for nothing by England in the semifinals. And I I I don't I I'm not real excited about them. Canada, like we mentioned Canada, they're the defending Olympic gold medal winners. So right. They're they're the last team to win a major trophy, so to speak. It, it, it's almost sad there's not an Olympic. You, you talk about trophies, but it's also a gold medal. It, it get confusing yeah. with the language, but I I think they have a chance. Brazil Brazil is always sort of again sort of there thereabouts. They're another team that has had a lot of problems with their federation for decades. But I I don't I think they're just they're sort of one step below this time around. The Netherlands might be there as well. They're, the Netherlands' best play, best player is out injured. Again, common theme. The two common themes are federations treating players poorly and knee injuries. Interesting. A um, couple final thoughts for you, John Marthaler. In terms of just like pure entertainment value or like groups to watch, how, how would you kind of break that down? If, if people are just like, I'm, I'm getting into this. I haven't paid attention to it that much, but I, I want to watch fun soccer. I want to watch competitive groups especially early on here when this starts on thursday would you would you give any recommendations along those lines well beyond watching the united states which is sort of obvious i would watch i think i'd watch the australian new zealand games just because those are watching the host country is always a fun time as far as the best group to watch uh, you've got france and brazil and jamaica which is not a bad concacaf team and then panama which is kind of a bad concacaf team they're all in the same group so that's group F that might be one to watch. Um, one thing I'm interested to see in group G, it's not necessarily a group of death, but you've got Sweden, Italy, Argentina, and South Africa in that group. Okay. And you yeah. th- on the men's side, you'd be like, well, Italy and Argentina might not even bring their first teams. They'll just play their second team and cruise through Italy and Argentina might be the two teams that don't get out of that group. Hmm. So I think, I, I think that one will be one to watch. Argentina has never won a match at, we're at the women's world cup wow. so it's I, I think that'll be an interesting one italy is a disaster there if you had to pick out two countries that are surprisingly a disasters at women's soccer italy and argentina would have to be my two picks i don't what? that's I interesting don't under- too. and you wrote about that a little the, yeah they're both at the world cup but they're also they have no history and they're terrible i mean they're not terrible they're at the world cup but you know what i mean they're yeah. they're these, these countries with amazing Men's soccer histories and just treat women's soccer as a, a thing that is not to be countenanced. Well, I was going to ask you, but that's kind of my final thought. Like you do, I mean, in some cases you see countries that are excellent in both, you know, men's soccer and women's soccer, but there's not a ton of always that that crossover. And it probably depends on how much resources and what what they're putting into it. But it is it does strike me as interesting if you follow 
the men's game and then the women's game, that these are not the same countries necessarily over and over again, especially like you just said, like Argentina and Italy, two of, you know, two very fine men's programs, not accomplished at all on the women's side. Yeah, exactly. It, I mean, it, it, it grew up entirely differently from men's yes. soccer. Like in England, women weren't allowed to play in football league, football league stadiums till the seventies, like they, wow. between the twenties and the seventies, they were banned. I can't imagine why they would need to ban them. Like what were, the, who were they protecting and from what, right. but that, that story is repeated in a lot of soccer nations. Brazil has a similar story. Italy and Argentina probably too, do too. I just don't know the answer. The teams that have traditionally been good at international women's soccer is are countries where women are encouraged to play sports, not team, not countries where they were necessarily good at soccer. That's finally, like I said, that's finally starting to change a little bit in that England's there, Spain's there. France is there. Germany is there. You know, these are the yep. big European soccer countries. And <laughs> I, I, I think I put this in the article, but Spain, Spain's most famous era was between 2008 and 2012 when they won the European championships twice in a row. This is the men's team. They yep. won the European championships twice in a row and won the World Cup in the middle. At that point, Spain's women had qualified for one major tournament ever. They were they, yep. they made the European championships once. They'd never been to the Olympics. They'd never been to the World Cup. So even you take a team like Portugal, a famous men's soccer country, I, they were here. They played at Allianz Field in the U.S. Women's Victory Tour in 2019. They're better now, but this is only four years ago. If you were at that game, Portugal's role in that game was they had 10 people in their half of the field. And the best thing they could do was they'd maybe be able to kick the ball out of their own half sometimes and run up the field a little bit. I don't think they I'm pretty sure they did not have a shot wow. either on goal or off target. Even getting <laughs> the ball into the US half was an accomplishment. And that's Portugal. That's the yeah. home of Eusebio, Cristiano Ronaldo, all these yeah. amazing Portuguese soccer history. And on the women's side, it was they're just cannon fodder. Interesting. Well, a lot of good storylines in this in this year's tournament. I like when things change i like when things aren't just kind of the same teams over and over again so i'm I'm curious about it now and i encourage you guys to go read what john is writing at starttobean.com and in the newspaper later this week john marthaler appreciate it as always um, we will enjoy the women's world cup and we'll talk to you again soon excellent always good to talk soccer with john marthaler and more soccer talk i think later on in the week i am turning the show over on friday to intern noah Furtado. you might remember noah was on the show with me a couple weeks ago did a great job talking about minnesota united uh, minnesota aurora and the minnesota Lynx, three teams that he has had a hand in covering already this summer i'm turning the show over to him i think he's going to talk to jerry zagoda about Minnesota United, maybe some 3M Open stuff as well. So some soccer talk coming on Friday as well. Wednesday and Thursday shows. Not sure. I think I've I think I've teased this a couple times, but Wednesday and Thursday shows this week. It's a real treat. Kind of a slow week, right? It's it's we're not it's it's still kind of still waiting for training camp, still waiting for other things to really kick up. Um Jeff Day from the Star Tribune, he and I did a two are doing a two-part series. Wednesday 10 best trades in Minnesota sports history. Um, we do a draft. We, t- we take turns. We pick them. We talk about our picks. We, we come to a consensus or we argue, things like that. Wednesday is the best 10. Thursday is the worst 10, and that's, that's going to be even more fun. So 
Hope you really enjoy uh, those those shows towards the end of this week. And uh, the, the subject of trades, the subject of uh, you know maybe maybe mentioned on uh, on one of those shows, brings me to the cooler and uh, and the sounder. Time to check my social media yeah. to see who loves me online. Hashtag blessed life. Listener Terry wants to know. Uh, let me find this email really quick. Listener Terry wants to know. Okay, yeah, with all the talk about a Towns trade, Carl Anthony Towns, could you explain to me and your other readers, listeners, why don't the Wolves admit they made a god-awful trade for Gobert and get rid of him? That is the end of the email, the end of the question. Terry, uh, this, is, this is complicated, not complicated, I don't know, depends on how you want to look at it. Um, here's my two cents on this. Number one, they're never going to admit it's a terrible trade, and if they traded him right now, if they traded Rudy Gobert, they would never get as much as they gave up for him. So that would be an immediate loss. Number two, um, and this is a more interesting, maybe nuanced take. Um, I think Carl Anthony Towns has more trade value than Rudy Gobert, and I think he's a better fit on this roster. As much as I don't like the Rudy Gobert trade in retrospect and how much they gave up and what the fit looked like with Towns, I think the fit is part of the problem. I think if you keep Rudy Gobert and you stop trying to make Rudy Gobert do things that aren't Rudy Gobert things and you give him the kind of point guard he needs, I know it's a lot of catering to Rudy Gobert, I think he can still help you in a different way and maybe a way that you need more than Carl Anthony Towns. So I still think a Towns trade is the better trade to make sense of this roster, both from a value standpoint, from what you can get from Towns, and from a roster construction standpoint. So that is my two cents on that. And yes, they would never admit they made a bad trade. Maybe they maybe they'll walk up to the line and say, "Ah, would we do it a year later?" I don't know, but um, they're never going to admit that. And that makes to me the Towns trade far more likely. On that subject, final question here. Emailer Peter says he's he's with me on the Towns uh, issue. Said not trading Towns right now will go down as the most tone deaf possible move they can make in terms of letting Anthony Edwards know that this isn't really quite his team yet. I know I'm not going to be watching many games with the current rendition as long as Towns remains in uniform. We've seen enough. I don't even know why people are talking about running it back. I agree. I I still don't like the idea of running it back. I wish they would find a town's trade this summer maybe the value's not there maybe they really do think they've got something here with with this lineup and if they just give it another year a full chance and and let towns be healthy that they'll have something going in the west i don't see it and even if they do get something cooking something's got to give next year with all the salaries so it just makes sense to me to do it now i'm with you peter but it it doesn't seem like where they're headed i don't know that that's not that does not seem like where they're headed in this upcoming season doesn't make sense to me, but that is where we are. Thank you so much for the questions. Thank you so much for listening today. Please, uh, I'd love to hear your feedback on the next couple shows with Jeff Day, the best trades and the worst trades in Minnesota sports history. Find me uh, you know, on social media, Twitter, threads, at Randball. Email me, um, Um, Yeah, I'd love to hear the feedback, who you think won the trades, things like that. And uh, won the won the uh, won the draft things like that and uh, yeah so those are those are going to be a lot of fun so definitely listen to the Wednesday and Thursday episode and the Friday episode of course when intern Noah Furtado takes over the show 
that'll do it for me here today. Hope you enjoyed this one. Back at it again tomorrow.